I live about a mile from a mighty river. Well, the Hudson isn't actually a river. It's a tidal estuary. It's a fjord. It's filled with brackish water, half salt and half fresh. Half of the day, 12 hours, the water flows in one direction from the ocean, and then the other half it turns around and flows the other. Centuries ago, there were so many oysters in the lower Hudson River that they were essentially free. Years ago, the Hudson River was plied by ferries back and forth, up and down. It was a waterway. It was a shared reserve. It was the lifeblood of this neighborhood. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about shared resources, liberty, and freedom, but mostly questions. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. It's back. The Real Skills Conference is back. An actual conference. You don't have to get on a plane, but you do need to interact face-to-face online from wherever you are. Two hours of interaction on your toes with real people talking about the things that matter, the skills that help us make a difference. Akimbo is back, running it again. To find out more, visit akimbo.com go for all the details. The people you meet will change your life. Not a lot of answers this week, but plenty of questions to think about. So let's start with this. If you are a giant multinational corporation, and I don't know, maybe it rhymes with Enerol Philectric, and you have a plant on the shore of the Hudson River land you own, is it okay to dump tons and tons of PCBs into the river because it's cheaper for your plant to do that than it is to dispose of them in some other way? Well, you probably guessed that after they dumped all of these toxic chemicals into the river, it had long-term consequences for plenty of people and various forms of nature all along the river. All right, how about this? If you own land on both sides of the Hudson River, is it okay to string a tight cable from one end to the other so that boats can't pass? Okay, how about this? If you have a jet ski, is it okay to zip up and down the river past homes at midnight with your unmuffled, loud exhaust waking everybody up? We have a lot of questions to answer about what we're going to do with shared resources. And in the case of things like rivers, we've been trying to answer those questions for a long time it's generally understood that the community has a say in what you're going to dump in the river that's going to affect people who are downstream from you. But now we live in communities where there are rivers, maybe not physical rivers, but real rivers everywhere we look. If you have an acre of land next to a neighbor who has an acre of land and you love milkweed and other plants that create lots of pollen, Are you allowed to plant an entire field of that, even though your next-door neighbor will suffer severe allergies as a result? Well, generally speaking, you can. You can because we don't judge pollen in the air as the same sort of toxic waste 
as dumping PCBs into a river. I think most of us have a pretty good idea about shared resources like rivers, about the fact that it might be okay for the storm drain to wash away some of the residue from your yard or your orange trees. But it's not okay for people to start dumping sewage into the river simply because it's more convenient, particularly if it's going to make people sick, kill all the oysters, and degrade the quality of life for everyone. But what happens if we think about rivers a little bit more metaphorically? What if we think about the river of time? Unlike the Hudson River, the river of time generally only goes in one direction, unless you ask H.G. Wells. This river of time, when it starts here and goes forward, is something that affects all of us as we think about standards in our community. So, for example, most communities have figured out that an educated populace, that when you spend the time and money to educate six-year-olds or nine-year-olds, teaching them to read and write, to understand science and other things, they will grow up down the river of time to become better contributors to the culture, that all of us benefit when kids are educated. So on behalf of the kids who don't have a say in it, the community speaks up and says, all kids have to be educated. And on behalf of the parents, the community says, and we're going to pay for it, and hence public school. And I'm hoping that most of the people who are listening to this agree with me that levying a tax on all of us so that kids can be well-educated seems like a really sensible idea. But once we start going down that road, one of the questions is, is it okay for those kids to be opted out of the public school that we're all paying for and go to a private school instead? And then, if they're going to a private school, should the taxpayer money that would have been going for them to go to public school be allocated for them to go to private school? And then, what happens if the private school they go to doesn't teach them things of use? What if after 8 or 10 or 12 years in this facility, they don't know how to read and write? What if instead of teaching them science as we understand it in a useful way, they're teaching them things that are closer to mythology, that aren't practical or useful, and that might even be divisive? How do we decide to fill the river of time? And that leads to beginning to understand things about capitalism, liberty, and freedom. Many of you have heard me say before that the purpose of culture is not to enable capitalism. The purpose of capitalism is to enable culture. In other words, capitalism is the special case. A friend told me about the difference between a Navy pilot and an Air Force pilot. In the United States, the Air Force started, they were the first people with airplanes, and there are volumes and volumes and volumes of rules and regulations. And the rule for Air Force pilots is follow all the rules in the books. Navy pilots, on the other hand, have just a few manuals. And the rule for Navy pilots is if it's not in the book, you can figure out what to do. So one is about avoiding getting in trouble, and the other one is about finding your own way forward. And when we think about the difference between those two, when we think about capitalism, one way to think about it is the default is everybody can do anything they want with liberty and freedom 
to create the most value for themselves. Selfishness first. And then culture, community, they have to come up with the special exceptions that aren't allowed. The alternative, the one that has been around for tens of thousands of years, is that culture says, these are our standards. These are the things that are sacrosanct. And in any spaces that aren't carved out, you can do anything that you want because that enables the market economy that enriches so many of us. And that is part of the challenge that we're facing in our culture today, which is it is tempting to say that I am responsible for everything that I do leave me alone. But the rivers, the rivers of time, the rivers of connection, the rivers of culture, and the rivers of rivers are now far more intertwined than they have ever been before. And so when we put an idea into a kid's head, it will pay dividends or costs for generations to come. Here's a simple example. Is it okay for private industry to say, we are going to discriminate against people like women, black people, people of color, indigenous people, people who have traditionally been discriminated against. We are not going to hire them and we are not going to promote them because we don't have to. Well, over the last few generations, I think we have seen the toxic long-term implications of this. And we have created this idea of the protected class of people where we say, yeah, you can say I'm not going to hire left-handed people. And you can say, I'm not going to allow people who come to my office to wear earrings. But no, you can't persist in maintaining a caste system, one that costs everyone an enormous amount in terms of justice and civility and potential. No, you can't do that. But we keep coming back to these edge cases, edge cases about who you can serve and who you can't serve edge cases about what are the long-term and short-term implications of using this chemical or having that policy. Should we treat big companies, monopolies, different than we treat little ones? Is it okay for Apple to say, we're not going to allow certain kinds of businesses to be in the App Store? Because if they do that, then de facto, they are keeping lots of people from seeing those apps. On the other hand, if it is completely wide open, then how do we hold people responsible for creating things, perhaps anonymously, that are toxic to the culture in the world around us? And I don't know. The purpose of this podcast isn't to tell you the answer, but it's to get us to think more clearly about the questions. Which river are we dumping stuff in? What are the repercussions generations from now what will people say? If Elon Musk builds a supersonic airplane, is it okay for him to fly it wherever he wants, regardless of how much carbon it dumps into the air? Is it okay for him to take off with a sonic boom that you hear every night when you're trying to sleep? Is it okay if that sonic boom breaks the windows of your house and you have to pay money to replace them? All of these things are on a spectrum. And there's no doubt in my mind that two or three generations from now, people are gonna look at the carbon we left behind and they're gonna say, what were you thinking? And they're gonna pay attention to just how deep inequity was, both in terms of income 
distribution, but mostly in terms of opportunity. Because opportunity creates new frontiers, it creates connection, it creates value. And every time we do what capitalism pushes us to do, which is the short-term expedient convenient thing, we might very well be shutting the door on the long-term resilient powerful bit of possibility instead. So I don't know the answer, but my hunch is that the more we think about it and the more we engage with it, the better we're going to get. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Three interesting questions this week. Here we go. Hi, Seth. Charles Porter in Montreal, Canada. Merci pour ton travail. Thanks for your work. Listening to your recent rant on education, I find myself wondering how to pull the lever of motivation. While I am a self-starter and I've learned things from Photoshop to interesting financial um, concepts, I've also offered training. Back in the day, I offered PowerPoint training to a whole group of people, and I offered it for free. No one took me up. Three months later, I offered the same training and charged a very nominal amount. 35 people showed up. Part of what I did was offer them half of their money back if they actually showed up. So where do you see the bonus and the lever of paying for what you're receiving? And is one of the weaknesses of our current give it away or the current build it and offer the free is one of those weaknesses that money for better or for worse remains a powerful internal drive for which people perceive the value and that without a lack, with a lack of perceived value, people will not engage in the education, the training, learning that they need to. Thank you for this, Charles. The thing is that money is two things, not one. It is a transfer of value. It is a way of 
paying our bills. But the other thing it is, is a story. We tell ourselves a story about the things that we are buying, whether we're a business spending $20 million on consultants or an investor deciding that a stock is undervalued or somebody taking a course on PowerPoint, which is free or not free. We tell ourselves a story about guarantees. We tell ourselves a story about getting a refund, getting a kickback. All of these things are separate from the fact that money is what we use to pay our bills. So when you showed up to your friends and colleagues and said, I'm going to offer this course for free, what they probably heard is you were viewing it as either a hobby or a gift, and they were viewing it as something they probably weren't going to take seriously. They decided their time was worth more than what you or they were going to put into the course. But when you showed up and said, this course costs money, you were making a promise. And they looked at the money and they looked at you and they said, well, Charles is the sort of person who would take this seriously if we were paying. And so if I'm going to show up, I need to take it seriously. And you can see all the ripples that are caused by this. We know that you can take almost all the courses at MIT for free, or you can pay thirty, dollars $40,000 a year to take them in person. Why is it that people who take them for free are so much less likely to finish them? Part of the reason is you don't get a degree, that piece of paper that magically confers some sort of value. But a big reason is because they didn't pay for it. So as we enter more and more of a digital age, we need to think about not what the marginal cost of delivering something is. It costs nothing for one more person to listen to this podcast. So pricing it that way makes no sense. But instead, what is the story? What is the story of money we're telling? And how will it change the outcomes that we seek? Hi, Seth. Andre here from Brazil. I liked your rant about merchants and shopkeepers. And one of the things that came to my mind when uh, you, in a way, raised the status of merchants is that the English merchants, in, now we know, are, were thieves. And they stole precious materials and gold from and uh, using slavery as their main force around the world. And, of course, at the time, the English culture might not perceive them as thieves, but rather explorers or merchants <laughs> or doing business as usual. But now we know different and have a different perception about what it means. And when we come to the uh, recent times, I guess many companies might uh, have this merchant mentality and do whatever they want if they're in, in the law, if it's ethic appropriate or not. So they don't matter as long as they get the business done or innovate in a way that for them works. Peace. Thanks, Andre. You brought up a couple of points here. First of all, the history of colonialism and imperialism is a travesty. It's filled with trauma and selfishness. It is a crime against humanity. But I want to point out that the people you were talking about weren't merchants. They were industrialists. They were colonialists. They were using power to take what they wanted. The merchant was the last step in the chain. The merchant is the person who says, what does this 
person right in front of me want to buy and how much are they willing to pay for it? So a merchant is the person who brought the first banana to Philadelphia and sold it for $100. But that doesn't mean they're not complicit because without merchants at the end of the chain, the chain starts to fall apart. So I think the core part of your question isn't the semantics of what's a merchant or not. It's what are merchants responsible for? Is the customer always right? Should we give people exactly what they want? If a nine-year-old wants to buy meth or crack or some sort of addictive, dangerous drug, is it okay to sell it to them? What if it's an adult? All of a sudden, merchants have decisions to make about which wishes are they fulfilling on the part of customers and what do they know about the supply chain and the side effects, the long-term repercussions of the thing that they are bringing to the world. And there are really only two ways to look at this. One way is to say merchants have zero responsibility. If it's legal and the customer wants it, they should sell it to them. The other way to look at it is to say that merchants have an enormous amount of responsibility because they and they alone have insight into all parts of the supply chain. They can look upstream and say, well, yeah, but this fabric was made by slave labor or these minerals came from conflict zones where people were working against their will. And no, I'm not going to go there because if I do, that's a race to the bottom and then others will have to go there as well. That we could be held responsible for the short and long-term impacts of the things we decide to sell. I, for one, would have it no other way because otherwise you're just a mindless cog in this weird invisible hand system of capitalism where you're not responsible for anything. I think that marketing is powerful enough, being a merchant is powerful enough, that we can change the culture. And if we're changing the culture, I think it's on us to own the fact that those side effects, the effects, the ripples of the changes we make are at least at some level on us. So no, I don't think you can blame the customer, and I don't even think you can blame the colonialist or the industrialist who is cutting corners. I think at some point the merchant has to say, not on my watch. I'm going to race to the top instead of racing to the bottom. Hey, Seth. It's Ross here from Cape Town. Um, I have a marketing question for you. So I have uh, an online account on LinkedIn, which has been very useful for building my business, which is uh, strongly linked to the old industrial economy. Um, and plays within those confines. I also have my more enjoyable, more creative uh, blog account. And this is a side hustle for me, and I want to build it up. But I, when I try and link the two areas of work, so if I try and post blog, creative blog posts to my LinkedIn account, it seems to clash strongly in terms of the the, uh, the brand and the message. Thank you, Ross. We'll get a little bit more mundane here, having just gotten pretty philosophical. The question is, what's an identity, what's a brand in this world anyway? On social media, what does it mean for your account to have a name or a picture associated with it? All of us, apparently, are our own logos. All of us have our own brands. What is a brand for? A brand is a promise. 
A brand is a way of saying to somebody who might engage with you, this is what you should expect when you engage with me. It is a foreshadowing of the future to come. So there is no complete identity online. No one will ever know the true you. They cannot know who you are from a tweet or a blog post. So we are always putting on a show. We are always showing up and presenting to others in the way we would like to be seen as part of the promise we make and our brand makes. So if St. Pauli Girl and Beck's Light Beer came from the same distillery and are, in fact, the same beer, I don't think it's disingenuous for them to be marketed as different beers because part of what we buy is the story around it. So if you're busy making promises to people in an industrial economy, it's not clear that being clever and being a poet is going to help them, and thus it won't help you. That what we do when we show up is we show up for the others. If you go in to see a heart surgeon, and this heart surgeon in their spare time is a stand-up comic doing racy content, I don't think you need to know that And I don't think they should try out their new material on you as you're facing something that's life or death. You came for a surgeon, and the surgeon should present in a way that gives you confidence, as long as they can keep that promise. Because, again, back to Andre's question, that's what we're doing is we're making a promise. We're making a promise to say, I'm not a cog in the system. I've chosen to be here in this way for you. And this promise I'm making, I fully intend to keep it. Consistency is worth way more than authenticity. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All-MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.